Welcome back to the Thomas Free Me TV and Podcast Show. Podcast. This is Thomas Show. How is everybody doing? This is Thomas Free Me bringing you another powerful conversation. This individual I met on Facebook. We had a conversation on Facebook. I definitely wanted to bring him on my show, and I did not expect the conversation to ensue as it did. Very, very powerful, impactful, educational, something that all citizens should listen to because we are talking about our constitutional rights. Mr. Downing has a writ of habeas corpus going into the Supreme Court that deals with how our constitutional rights are violated in a bogus plea deal system that is locking up 97% of our communities breaking apart our families so we're going to discuss how all of our rights are being violated in that process so let's just continue being our best selves let's continue uniting america we the people coming together making us a strong union so we can take back our country we the people and build what the constitution i believe was intended to build and that's equal justice for all we're going to get into racism is the constitution itself racist or the system that is manipulating the constitution to appear and push its agenda of racism so we're going to get into that discussion we're also going to speak about race on maybe some some options and opinions on how we can bridge this divide between white and black and possibly span that gap that we've created this 400 year gap so we're going to get into that discussion as well again very impactful please leave your comments like shares make sure that you are subscribed if you're not but please join the discussion let me know what your thoughts are and um i will definitely bring mr mr tanawa on again and continue this discussion so until then Please continue to be your best self. Please continue to use your highest education, your higher learning, and just understand that we're in the face of ignorance all the time. So maybe this is a, a moment to, to teach versus become emotional. So we're going to get into all of that and more here on the Thomas Freeme TV and podcast show. Enjoy. Okay, so good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm blessed, man. So how do you pronounce your name? Tanawa. Tanawa. Yeah, yeah. It means glorious eagle in Sioux. That's right. Yes, sir. That's beautiful. I've never ran across that. And that's native? Yeah, it's uh, Sioux. Sioux. Part of the Oglala tribe. It's a Sioux nation, yeah. What, what is it that we are going to be discussing today? Well... There's, there's a lot to it. So I, I probably got to break it up into, in, into something specific, something that, something that you would like your audience to hear about. So most everything that I'm dealing with has to do with, with the slavery institution, you know, and I think that we, we know that from history. We know that from the 13th amendment, we know that from the way that the system works in general. So um, there's a lot of history that has to, that has to uh, go into that to, in order to understand the concepts. Uh, we can certainly talk about plea bargains. Um, that's the, that's the main the main thing that I'm fighting, you know, plea bargains are not constitutional. Nowhere in the constitution does it say that you can convict someone in any other way other than a trial by jury. And, uh, 
Uh, and if you look at, again, the history of it, uh, it goes back to the convict leasing days. So it was Chief Justice Waite, it was his court that specifically uh, allowed it. And uh, he has a long history of misreading the law. And we know that. And uh, most of the rulings that we're dealing with are, are coming from that era, an era known as, uh, as uh, legal realism. And um, where the judges were making their own their own laws that were based upon their own social, political, or public policy, and they were altering uh, the uh, the fundamentals of the United States Constitution. So, um, the plea bargains are are one of my biggest concerns, and uh, and what what we're gonna what we're gonna get reversed. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of precedent that exists as far as case law as well as also statutory law that says that you cannot create a rule that impairs the obligation of the contract or a rule that that takes away a constitutional uh, obligation. So. Um, there's that but then as far as the case is concerned you know i can i can talk about that as well um you know what i did is uh when i when i first when i first went in and i saw what was going on i'd never been arrested in my life uh this this all came from a divorce that, that my wife wanted when i saw what was going on i just i knew it was wrong it was contrary to all american principles it was contrary to everything i knew i have have a degree in law uh, substantive law and uh um and I, I knew that something had to be done. I wasn't sure exactly what was going to be done because I had to figure out what the actual root issue was. And uh, once I figured that out, then, you know, of course, I had some direction to go on. But um, in order to challenge the constitutionality of a statute, you have to be directly impacted by the statute. So I knew that I was going to have to get convicted. So we used no contact order to allow that to happen. I didn't tell my wife what was going on. I didn't tell anybody. And uh, I just I just committed to doing it. So. Um, it was no contact order violation, and uh, there were some very specific things that happened during the trial that that, that were brought up, and, uh, um, and through this act of, I guess, civil disobedience, I um, I allowed myself to fall. When I got to prison, then I spent the time there um, uh, petitioning other individuals, getting everybody else to, to get on board, because I needed as big of an army as, as I possibly could to, to, to bring. So I filed the first, the first writ on April 10th, 2019, and then... Over the course of the next 18 months that I was in prison, I stayed there all the way through my good time, right up until the day that they kicked me out, because I need to get as many people as possible to petition with me. And I got thousands and thousands of people to, to do it. So, you know, um, ultimately what happened here in the state of Washington is it was a grand jury issue. That affects nine other states, but there's a the bigger issue with the grand jury as well. And so let's just break it off into two. So first off, there's nine states that do not do a grand jury whatsoever. They don't do it. Here in the state of Washington, Article 1626 says no grand jury shall adjourn or summoned in any county. That is directly contrary to Clause 1 of Amendment 5, which says that no person. What do you mean? What do you mean that there's no grand jury? What does that mean for listeners that don't understand? Yeah, so uh, obviously the Constitution of the United States uh, lays the fundamentals of the law, right? The procedures and processes that must be followed for adjudication of a crime, right? So when they bring you in, they got to follow the procedures and processes. Now, Clause 1 of Amendment 5 says, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on the presentment or indictment of a grand jury. That's the grand jury clause. So it requires an indictment by a grand jury in order to hold someone over for a capital crime or an infamous crime. Capital crime is any crime that results in death, punishable by death. And an infamous crime, according to uh, United States statute, is any crime that, that uh, has more than one year imprisonment in a penitentiary, right? Now, it goes on one step further and it says it's not the amount of time that you get sentenced to, but the amount of time you can be sentenced to. So, you know, what, what it boils down to is it is that you've got to follow certain procedures. And that particular procedure says before you can arrest someone and hold them over for a trial, you must first have an indictment by a grand jury. Now, <clears throat> I, I, when, you, uh, 
when you consider when you consider the role of the judges in, in, in what they do. So the judges are obligated to follow what's in the Constitution. They um, they enter into an oath or affirmation to support the Constitution of the United States and and uh, and anything what's in it that's in it. So the Constitution under Article Six says the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. They become the ones that are obligated to ensure that everybody has the the, the due process is, is followed. So um, they're actually the, the linchpin of, of them all. So what happens is, is that you have the right to due process of law because the judges in every state have the duty to ensure that those rights are provided. So when you deal with rights in particular, and this is something that most people don't understand, is where do rights come from? Well, they come from someone else's duty to act, okay? Where, where there is no duty, there cannot be a right. So duties all, or rights always derive from another's duty to act. Now, let me give you an example, okay? In, in the Constitution of the United States, the first, the first portion of it, Articles 1 through Article 6, it establishes the duties, okay? Now, we go to uh, Article 3, for instance, and it says, the trial of all crimes, with the exception of impeachment, shall be by jury, and the trial shall occur in the state in which the crime is said to have been committed. Now, is that a right or is that a duty? That's actually a duty and is directing mm-hmm. someone to provide a trial by jury in order to, in order to process this, this individual for a criminal uh, a case. So <clears throat> the reason why rights are inalienable is because you don't have the right until someone else has breached their duty. That's why the, right, the, the duty always comes before the right. So where there is no duty, there cannot be a right. And you can't have a right violated without someone else breaching a duty to act. So <clears throat> in the case of Article 3, like I just said, the judge has the duty to ensure that you are tried by a trial by jury. Now, if that if that judge were to say to me, would you like to give up your right to a trial by jury? Before I even have that right to give up, that judge has already breached his duty, which means that it's an inalienable right. You cannot give them up. They, they, they can't. So, um, But you always have that offer, though. Sorry? You always have that offer to go to trial or take a plea. So, so it's not constitutional, though. It's not legal. So within the doctrine of duties and rights, the doctrine of duties and rights are very, very specific. And this is where this is where people get it wrong. So the reason why the duty comes before the right is this. The Constitution of the United States was signed into law on September 17th, 1787, right? So that's the actual body of the Constitution, Articles 1 through Article 6. That establishes the duties and responsibilities of the government, right? So legislative, uh, executive, and judicial, each within each one of the articles. So that establishes the government's duties. That came first. Then the Bill of Rights was signed into law on December 15, 1791. The rights came after the duty. That's why the, the duty comes before the right, because the rights were established after the duties were put into place. Therefore, the duty must come before the rights. So where there's a duty to act, they are obligated by law to do it. So if they were to say to you, you want to give up your right to do it before you have the right to give up, they've already breached their duty to act. So they don't have the right to do it. Now, there are actual statutes that, that coincide with this. A good example is the rules of civil procedures. Well, well, well explain, explain, how, explain how that process is in everyday court today that you're saying is, is breaking down. So where is the constitutional error at in the plea deal process? Them offering you the plea deal is what you're saying is unconstitutional? So, so there's a couple issues that are that are occurring. One is you have the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. It's a presumption of, of innocence. 
any irrebutable irre presumption of guilt is unconstitutional. So if you are presumed guilty based upon the mere fact that you've been given a charge, then that is actually unconstitutional. What happens is it shifts the burden of, of, of uh, the burden of proof from the prosecutor, the prosecution onto the defense. And then the defense has to go out and collect evidence in order to prove his innocence, right? And so that's unconstitutional. And in fact, it's also a violation of the international human rights standards. So it's not just you know, American constitution, it's, it's international law. So you can never, ever, ever place the burden of responsibility onto the defendant to prove his innocence or else it would be, it would be. So, and I understand that, but in a plea process though, it's, it's the plea process is at the, at the defendant's obligation. Like a, a plea deal is not forced on anybody. Oh, I, I beg to differ. It's oh. forced on a lot of people. Okay. So, 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 so the thing is, is that, is that when you come into the, and, and you get arrested, right? I'm, I'm going to go off to the state of Washington because the state of Washington is, is somewhat unique. The state of Washington doesn't have a grand jury. They use what's called information as the charging device. There's three different ways to charge someone. One is a presentment to a grand jury. The other is an indictment to the grand jury. And the third is information. Now, what happens with information is, is that someone calls up law enforcement and says, this person did this to me. They take that information and that's all that's necessary in order to proceed with charges. So here in the state of Washington, there's no investigation that occurs. They don't come in and ask the, the, the individual what is what, what, what their side of story. It is simply an act where they take the information and that information is not verified or validated. There's no third party. There's no neutral, unbiased um, decision maker that's validating these, these, these accusations. And what happens then is it places an inordinate amount of power onto the prosecutor to be able to pressure individuals into pleading guilty. So they can use any number of different tactics. One would be charge loading. Another would be threatening for extended periods of time. I've seen a case. I have a friend who um, he was actually charged with two counts of first degree murder. Right. And they came at him and they told him to plead out for a fourth degree assault. Two murder charges. He was looking at life in prison. And then when he beat that, they came and said, OK, if you'll just plead out to to a fourth degree assault, we'll let you go. I mean, that's an inordinate power. That would have never happened had there been a neutral, unbiased third party, had there been a grand jury in place that would be verifying the accusations and determining whether or not a crime has actually been committed, it would take the power out of the prosecutor's hands. That's the whole purpose of the of the grand jury. The grand jury. Well, that's role. that is the purpose of the grand jury, but I don't know if even <clears throat> grand juries operate in that fashion, because with my case. Like I went to a federal trial and with my case, I wasn't even made aware that I was allowed the grand jury transcripts. That was like to, to get your grand jury transcripts. I found out years later, you're allowed, but nobody tells you this because it was always a question in my mind is how was I indicted when they had no information on me at all? Zero. The only information that they got on me came from the person that ended up snitching on me, but right. we were indicted on the same day. So how did I get indicted? That does not make no sense. The only thing that makes sense is that they had my phone number on his tapped line, not saying anything, just my number on his tapped line. And that's where an indictment came from for, for conspiracy to distribute mass amounts of cocaine. It, it's not valid. So 
here's the problem, right? It, it, it goes even further. So these states that don't have a grand jury, that's a black and white issue, right? That is, that is, a, that is an unconstitutional act on its face, right? Meaning that, that the way that, that the law operates is not constitutional and can never be. Like here in the state of Washington, Article 1, Section 26 says, no grand jury shall be drawn or summoned in any county. That particular statute is unconstitutional on its face, meaning that it will never function constitutionally because it doesn't allow for the grand jury. There are other states that say we will have a grand jury, but then it becomes a procedural issue. Now, here's the problem with the grand jury is you're not allowing the accused to be present in the court in, in the grand jury. How is the accused being given the opportunity to confront the accusations? That's the whole purpose of the grand jury. Now, we can go back to a case. There's a case from 1884 called Hurtado versus California. If we want to know the exact procedures and processes of a grand jury. You're not even allowed to have your attorney present during those grand. Nobody. It's just the state. Right. So so what happens is, is that the state is taken aside. The state is taken aside of the of the um, of the petitioner. Right. Of the accuser. And so once the state takes the side, they now have a a, a vested interest in pursuing and winning. So now you have basically the petitioner or the accused or the accuser coming in and presenting their their case to the grand jury. Now we have an equal protection issue here. And that is that if you are being treated as though you're innocent, why are you not in that grand jury? Why are you not given the opportunity to confront that? You got some good points, man. Those are points. Importantly. You have an unequal protection of two citizens. You have two equal citizens. One is being allowed to present his accusation, but the other one is not being allowed to confront the accusation. You have an equal protection matter. You can't, so let me, you can't arbitrate. Let me clarify what it is that you're saying for the listener that, that's not really grasping. So while you and I are out conducting our daily business, right, we are just going out, we're getting up, we're going day to day, we get up, we go to work, we drop our kids off to school. There is a hearing going on about us and evidence is being presented to 12 jurors from a prosecutor. 23, sorry. It's 16 to 23. Okay. So uh, I'm, I'm thinking trial, but so, so it's, it's, um, so you have, so you have this, this case that's on being unfolded about you without you having any knowledge of what is going on. And, if you if you have been following the Arbery case, the Rittenhouse case, if you've been following these cases, you can see the power of the prosecutor in the courtroom In their opening statements. They bring they bring whatever they say, whatever it is that they want to say. They br- they say whatever they want to say, and they know that they have the conviction of truth behind them. As far as what I mean by that is that. It's the same as a law officer in court. When these people speak, they speak with the court knowing that what they say is the truth. This is evidence, what they say. Absolutely. Right. And this hearing is going on. Go ahead. They're also allowed to present hearsay evidence, hearsay evidence that would not be admissible during a trial. So they're able to bring in evidence that, that isn't even admissible for the trial in order to secure the indictment. So they can they can say anything they want, essentially. The prosecutor can say anything that they want, and there's no opportunity for the accused to be able to confront the accusation. Now, there's that that's not a grand jury, right? That's that's the same as not having one at all. Because all that is is the state saying, I want this charge and I'm gonna go get it. I mean, without having the accused present to be able to 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 represent himself, to be able to confront the accusation, you have an equal protection matter. 
You cannot and where we see that in the courtroom at is when when uh, as you say first degree murder a guy gets charged with first degree murder he don't fall under the pressure of the plea as you articulately you know laid out he don't fall under the pressure of, of this plea deal for the aggravated assault he goes to trial under this first degree murder this prosecutor lays out this elaborate fictional case and quickly yeah. finds out that they don't have the evidence to support this case so what do they do they come now to the jury instructions and lower the charges to the aggravated assault they wanted him to plea out to. It wasn't even aggravated assault. Fourth degree assault here in the state of Washington is words. You don't even touch the individual. It, it's words. It is, it, is a, it is a misdemeanor. And it's, I mean, you, you, you don't touch anyone. If you, if you have bodily contact, it winds up being a third degree. That's how significant this was. I mean, so they had him charged for first degree murder to get him to plea out to essentially a misdemeanor. Yes, it was. Yes, that's exactly what it was. That was. And so he went to trial. And during the trial, what happened was, was that was that the individual that was the witness, she lied and she and she didn't know who it was. And she said, anyway, it came to be that she had no idea who she was looking at. It, It wasn't him. And she and it came to that. So then there became some libel uh, issues that, that, that was there. But ultimately, it wasn't him that was there. And the jury recognized that immediately. And they came back with not guilty. But they came, they, um, the prosecutor ended up coming to him and saying, hey, plead guilty to this fourth degree assault, and we'll let you go today. Right? I mean, so he's went from literally looking at life, the rest of his life in prison to, hey, you can get out today if you'll just and plead I, guilty. And, and I accept. Speak- and I speak on this all the time. This is the overzealousness of, of the prosecutorial, you know, the, the conduct. But so, OK, so let me let me wrap up a summation here and then we're going to get into what it is that you're doing now that we have a general understanding of what it is that you're talking about and right. how our viewers can help and such. So you are saying that the unconstitutionality is in the fact of the pressure that is applied on people to plea out by the the amount of uh the amount of allowance that prosecutors have in pressuring us into into doing things that we don't want to do so as as you corrected me when i said that plea deals are obligation you know you have to you have to obligate to take a plea you corrected me and you said, you know, you beg to differ. And, and you said that it's because of the pressure that is put on that individual. When you said that, I have no, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't argue with you. I mean, I have to say you're 100% right because I've been under that pressure. I have guests on my show that describe this pressure. I'm getting ready to interview somebody now that is, 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 in prison for manslaughter because he was pressured to take this plea that they were going to arrest his family, take away his children, all of these things. If he didn't take this plea and, and knowing that they had DNA evidence clearing him of this crime that they withheld until he took the plea. Exactly. Exactly. And so these are intentional acts of deception. This isn't about justice. This isn't about this isn't about who's wrong and who's right, who's innocent and who's guilty. This is simply a matter of enslaving individuals, sending them off to, to, to state-run uh, for-profit companies so that they can generate revenue at the expense of the citizenry. That's what Speak this whole truth. thing is about. 
Speak these states the truth. are making billions and billions of dollars every single year at the expense of citizenry. All right. They're taking advantage of a very specific demographic, and that demographic is the poor. They are creating laws that are focused on the poor in order to enslave individuals. And we know that because the 13th Amendment says so. The 13th Amendment, which was supposed to abolish slavery, says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist except as the punishment for a crime. The moment that you say accept, it means you can have slavery, but you call it justice from now on. And these states immediately recognize that. And the moment that you allow for slavery by the states, guess what? The state is now the slave owner, right? Not only are they the slave owner, but they're the ones that are bringing the charges. They're the ones that are doing the investigating. They're the ones that are doing the judging. They're the ones that are doing the, uh, the, the, uh, the supervision. They're the ones that are profiting off of it. Here in the state of Washington, Article 2, Section 29 says, Congress shall provide for the working of inmates in for-profit industries for the benefit of the state. The state is making billions of dollars off of the involuntary servitude of individuals that they are picking up. They're taking That sounds like peonage to me. To do it. So here's, here's, the, here's what my case is really bringing up, okay? When we talk about pressure, all right, and establishing a contract, because that's all that a plea bargain is, is a contract. It's a contract of guilt, okay? Now, when you deal with contracts, there's basically two different opposing options. One is blackmail or extortion. The other is robbery, okay? So let me just tell you the difference between the two. Robbery is establishing a contract by illegal means using immediate bodily harm, immediate bodily harm. So a good example would be, I, I have a gun, I point the gun at you, and I say, give me your money or I will shoot you. You give me your money and establish a contract with me for that, not because you want to, but as a result of the fear or dress that I've inflicted upon you, okay? Now, extortion, on the other hand, is the opposite. It is establishing a contract through illegal means using future bodily harm, okay? Future bodily harm. So when you deal with extortion, it is, goes like this. If you don't plead guilty, I will send you to prison for 20 years, Okay. What my contract or, or what my case is, is establishing is what's called the formula of intimidation. All intimidation follows this formula. Okay? It's very simple. Okay? And, and once you know this formula, it will make sense. It goes like this. If you don't do X, I will do to Y, whereby X is my envisioned outcome and Y is a result my powers can cause. Okay? I have certain powers. I'm a United States citizen. I have the power to bear arms. If I go and buy a gun and I point that gun at you and I employ the formula of intimidation, it will go like this. If you don't give me your money, I will shoot you. Right? You give me your money as a result of the fear address that I've inflicted upon you. That's a crime called robbery. Okay? You will go to prison for that. Now, on the flip side, if I'm a prosecutor, I have certain powers as well. I have the power to send you to, uh, to send you to prison or the power to give you charges. If I abuse my powers, it will go like this. If you don't plead guilty, my envisioned outcome, I will send you to prison for 20 years. The result my powers can cause, you make that decision and establish that contract out of fear or dress that's been inflicted upon you. Okay? Now, in contract law, okay, in contract law, a contract is illegal. If the way in which the contract is formulated is illegal, then the contract which is formed then becomes illegal. Duress is a justifiable defense for a crime, a breach of contract, or a tort. The moment that you use duress in order to formulate a contract, it makes that contract illegal and completely breachable, okay? You cannot use fear and duress in order to formulate a contract. You can't do it, okay? That's well, the this problem. is why what, what you're saying right there is why you can't accept a plea deal or, or not a plea deal, but a, uh, an affidavit under duress, you know, when the cops are in, right. Anytime that you can prove that you're under duress, it makes it unconstitutional, illegal to, to, to verify what it is that you're saying. Right. And that falls under amendment five. So amendment five is where all this comes from. Amendment five says 
says no person shall be compelled to act as a witness against themselves. Okay. That's the self-incrimination clause. Now the key word is compelled. Okay. Compelled is defined by blacks as to bring about through the use of threats or intimidation. So anytime threats or intimidation is used in order to get you to act as a witness against yourself, that means that that, that evidence is always and forever barred from prosecution. So when you take a plea bargain, down at the bottom of that plea bargain, it says, I did certain things and you signed it, which means that you were acting as a witness against yourself. And the way that they get you to do it is through the use of threats or intimidation, which is in violation of the Fifth Amendment. You can't do that. All these plea bargains are all unconstitutional, every one of them, because, this, because the system is, is taking advantage of the individual. We have a 96 to 98% rate of plea bargains across the United States of America right now. That is 96 to 98% of the cases that don't even get to tell their side of the story. And that is an egregious failure of the justice system. It, it don't even make sense. And how is nobody justice. questioning this? You Who know has what I mean? a 98% win rate? This you know, but you know what they're that? telling the people, though? They're telling the people is, is that these people are, are, are guilty. 97% yeah. of the people that we catch are guilty. So that's how efficient our policing system is. This is what they so tell the people the with that argument. The problem with that argument is if you go to the criminal procedure manual right now, okay, and you were to read the preface of it in, in the second or third paragraph, I don't remember which one, second or third paragraph, it will say, and this was written by a, a circuit court judge from the Ninth Circuit. So federal judge, Ninth Circuit, he said, most prosecutors across the United States agree that as much as 15% of the people in prison are innocent, but that is an acceptable deviance because our system isn't perfect. I'll tell you what, that number is a lot higher than 15%, but we got them to admit to that. If that's true and that number is accurate, then there is right now today over 600,000 people that are, that, are, that, are, that are suffering, innocent, because the system's too lazy to follow the rules and to do things the proper way. We don't have to, we don't have to prosecute or criminalize every single thing that, that, that occurs, right? I mean, if a family, a husband and wife have an issue, you don't put a, a, a criminal element between them and separate mm -hmm. them. Why don't you send them off to family counseling? OK, but why is this happening? These are the questions is why? Why are they doing this? Why? Why is it set up in this fashion? Money. Uh -oh. That's right. So when we when we're sitting here. I, uh, I lost here. Can you still hear me? I can hear you. I can't see you. Uh. Okay. There you go. There you are. Okay, back. Okay. So the reason why they're doing it, it's real simple. It, it, it's well, we understand government as though it's a business, right? They tell us every day. They say this is the criminal justice industry. Okay, that's a fallacy. It's a lie. It's it's an illusion, right? This isn't an industry because an industry, by definition, is a subsection of manufacturing. There's three requirements for an industry. One is you must have uh, a product that you, that you produce. Two, you must create revenue. And three, you must pay liabilities, all three of which the justice system does not do. They create criminals, all right? They create, they create slaves. These are, these are not something that is a product that they sell, right? So this is a, a group of people that are, that are taking advantage of the citizenry by telling them lies and misinformation in order to increase their revenue. This is their industry. If the Constitution of the United States got its way, guess what? They would all be out of a job because the Constitution of the United States says that we are to be free, right? Their job is to ensure our freedom. But instead, they're, they're taking advantage of it. So they've taken this, this weapon that was meant to protect the citizenry, and they've made it a weapon against the citizenry.
at their own hands. But they let me let me ask you this on, on that point that you just made. Let me ask you this on, on a, just a side note, real quick. Do yeah. you think that the Constitution is uh, is I want to be careful on how I ask this. Do you believe that the Constitution was written to keep black people enslaved? Do you think that it's a racist article to begin with? We understand the element of how life was at that time. We understand the forefathers were coming over here trying to create a new America, so to say. But do you think that 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 article, you know, those 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 the Constitution is a racist article? So I, racist, no, but, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you why. Okay. So there's a couple of, there's a couple of things that we need to, we need to discuss there. First off, when we started our country, we started what was called an egalitarianism form of government, which is that all men are equal. Okay. Now, when you create an egalitarianism government, you must have all men actually be equal. You cannot have classes of people. You can't, because if all men are equal, then, then they can't, then there can't be classes. The moment that you establish a class within an egalitarianism type government, you set up that government to fail. It is going to fail because now the government has the ability to pick a side because there's classes, right? So we had a critical failure from our forefathers. When they created this government, it was a great plan. It was a great idea, but they messed up and they messed up bad. What they did was they refused to raise their property up to equal status and they left a group of people at a lower status, which has caused this, not a criminal justice system, but a criminal enslavement system. Who was that group of people? We needed to bring everybody up to an equal status. Everybody must start an equal status with an egalitarianism type government, or you're set up to failure. Who was the group of people that, that they set aside that you mentioned? George Washington, for instance, Thomas Jefferson, both refused to give up their slaves. They kept their slaves. And -hmm. yet they created a country that says that all men are created equal. That caused that caused a class of people to or a, a perpetual system that can discriminate, because the moment that you've allowed for discrimination to occur within a system that is not able to have discrimination, now you have perpetual discrimination. We can never reach a, a, a level of equality unless we restart, unless we bring everybody back to an equal status and restart. In order for all men to be equal, government and laws must first treat them equal. That's the way that it has to start. Okay. And the reason why I asked that going back into what we were talking about, the reason why I asked that is because if, if people believe that the constitution itself is a racist article, right, then everything that, that we're kind of speaking of is moot because the, the constitution is, is the root of everything. But I don't feel that it is. I feel that it, it is as, as most of law is, is just vague enough to be taken advantage of right. and manipulated into, into how it, it's became today with yeah. all of these amendments. And, and, and just it's, it's, it's not the amendments. So it's deception. Okay. So, so first off, I have to agree with, with, with Justice John Marshall Harlan. John Marshall Harlan was the one that provided the dissent for the Plessy versus Ferguson case, which Plessy versus Ferguson uh, allowed for racial segregation in the South. Okay, so John Marshall Harlan said our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. With respect to civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. That is absolutely true. Our Constitution isn't the one that's at fault. There's other things that are at fault. Now, here's the thing. Okay, race is not the issue. 
we, we've been told that it is for hundreds of years. We've been told that race is the problem, but race actually isn't it, okay? That is a lie. It's called a diversionary tactic, and it was created by our government in order to get our attention off of them and focused on each other. Because as long as we're looking at each other as the problem and is race-based, that pits us, the people, against each other. And then we don't realize that the real antagonist is actually the government, okay? And the reason why it, why it is is because the roots of slavery have always been primarily economic, okay? All through history, if you owed a debt to someone and you couldn't pay that debt, you could sell yourself into slavery in order to settle the debt. It was a feasible alternative for debt management, okay? That is the root of all slavery that exists, okay? So that's an economic issue. It's not a race-based issue. That's an economic issue. Now, if we look at the criminal justice system in general, right, and we look at the adjudication process, right, it's going to, you're going to get a little bit more information from from that. So it's a key on. So the way it works is this, okay? If you choose to violate the law, you incur a debt to which you are charged and then called to account so you can pay the debt. These are all very simple accounting terms, right? And accounting, of course, is economics, okay? Now, the, the case that I'm bringing forward dealing with the grand jury is this. Now, the way that debt normally works is if I want to purchase something from the store, a bill will first be generated, which I sign and accept. Then my account is charged and I incur debt to which I then have to pay. This is a very simple method for transactions to which anyone can understand, okay? However, if the store charges a person's account without billing them first, that's called fraud. You must always bill before a charge is generated. And how this applies to these cases across the United States is that an indictment is called a bill. So absent indictment, people are being charged fraudulently because they're not being billed first. This is a very simple system. Our forefathers, they weren't elaborate men. They weren't creating these elaborate institutions or, or, or crazy systems that only men of rich or educated or noble status could understand. They were simply trying to create a reconciliation system that, that reconciled the debt that was owed to society. That's it. It's a debt-based system. But as long as we are talking about race, the people don't realize that the problem is the government, not the people. If we came together and united, we would realize that we didn't start this problem. This wasn't black versus white. This wasn't man versus woman. This was, those were tactics that were created by the government in order to keep us in a perpetual state of ignorance. And it's time well, we, for us to we stop agree. I mean, yes, I, 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 think, I think the agreement is that slavery itself is not racist, but America targeted slavery specifically towards black people you know so so i i'm not i'm not going to go into the origins of the issue because i i don't know i mean i'm not i'm not gonna say i don't nor do i owe, nor do i it's, i, I it's, don't see how they owed a debt to, to i others. i guess i guess what i'm trying to do is 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 play just devil's advocate um which i'm 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 a white person and 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 right. such but but I'm, I'm just trying to understand how a black individual would would view what you're saying and believe what you're saying because I I'm 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 convicted with you. I understand what you're saying and I'm trying to get it to where our listeners that are skeptical because that's what my I want my channel to be for the skeptics to come and say okay, you know, this conspiracy I want to unite America into believing what it is that you're saying. Yeah. And and so a lot of that is black people because they have been in, under control of the democratic agenda for yeah. so many years. And it's 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 how do we get them to understand that. What we're saying 
if I'm so, if I'm articulating so, that correctly. So the thing that I would say to that, and, and I run into this a lot. I, I I've actually and I've been getting a little bit better at it because it's a very sensitive subject. It's a it very, is. Very it very I understand is. it is. You know, a, a good example is I have a I have an individual that I'm that I'm working with down in Alabama. A great guy. He's in prison. He's going to be there for a while, but. But I, I really think that he's a good guy. And, and, and that's one thing that I've, that I've come to understand is that most of these people are not, they're not evil. They're, they're, we're told that they're, that they're evil. We're, you know, the system says that, but that's not true. I went to prison and, and, and I was innocent of, of whatever. And I went there and I didn't meet a single person that I didn't like. And that's a really strange thing to say, but, but it's true. I was not uncomfortable until I got around the guards. They were the only ones. God sent me to prison because that's where he wanted me to be. I wasn't at all in danger and I was there for, for, I was there for a long time. Anyway, that's digressing, but here's the thing. This is a very, very sensitive uh, subject. And I, one day I had this individual from Alabama. He said to me, he said, um, he was really excited about what's going on. You know, he knew the whole story. He knew what was happening with my case. And he said, he said, um, he said that, that he couldn't believe what was going on. He was, he was thanking me for it. And, and in my mind, it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, I'm thinking, well, I, I'm, I'm just returning to what I was before. I was already free at one point. I'm going to return to being free. It wasn't a big deal, and I kind of blew it off. But later on that day, I kind of went back, and I read his message again, and I realized that this is an individual who has spent his entire life living what I've only had to live for just a couple of years, you know, his entire life, and then his parents, their entire life, and his grandparents, their entire life. I mean, this is a, it's a group of people that have, they have historically been, been treated just horribly. I know only a little bit of it because I've only had to suffer just, just a short period of time. These are, these are people that have had been targeted by a system for, for, for decades, for centuries. And, uh, and yeah, so this is a very sensitive subject. But one thing that's really important for all of us to understand is that this is our America, right? This is right. my America. This is our America. We okay? the people. And if we want to move forward with our America, we got to figure out a way to do that. And the way that we do that is, is, that, is that I don't know what happened in the past. I have no control over that, okay? But what I do know is that right now today, I want to work together. I want unity. I want us all to have peace and harmony because that is going to keep people out of, out of jail. That's going to keep people out of prison. That's going to stop having these, these acts of violence against each other if we can just come together in unity. But here's the problem, okay? The court does not want unity. Law enforcement mm. does not want unity. The government does not, not want unity. Those are not something that's consistent with their business model. So the court has been putting it into place for years and years. They've been putting it, we're talking Supreme Court. The Supreme Court for years has been putting into place rulings that are intentionally undermining the union of our government and providing for states' rights, which states' rights is simply code word for, for segregation and discrimination, all right? The moment that you allow for the states to have their own rights and act differently however they want, then you have an a, a absence of harmony. The whole point of the union and what we were trying to create was mm. harmony among all 50 regional governments. So we have peace and, and continuity, right? But instead, from the very start, the, the Supreme Court of the United States put into place rulings that allowed for the individuality of each one of these states. And when you have states that are each competing for their local interested views, then you have disharmony, okay? You don't have equal treatment among all the locations, right? If, if I'm a, here in the state of Washington and I go over to the state of Oregon, guess what? I'm treated differently than, than I would be otherwise. How is a United States citizen residing in Washington state being deprived a right secured by the constitution and enjoyed by United States citizens in the state of Oregon? That's because of this disharmony. That's because the, the court and the system does not want harmony. 
They've been undermining the union for years. They've so been is that that's the United States. That's the pernicious uh, uh, decision that you're saying our forefathers put into the Constitution was the individuality of each state versus the union. And the courts are manipulating that into such as you just described. So our system of government prior to the Constitution, prior to becoming a, a, a constitutional based federal republic was a, um, a confederacy. Mm-hmm. Now, a confederacy is individual sovereign states with a loose central government. Right. But they maintain their sovereignty at the edge. OK, that that type of a government does not have unity. It doesn't work together. Now, when we were getting ready to move into a federal republic, there were certain reasons why we needed to do this. OK, let me give you just three of the examples. One was there was no executive officer to oversee the implementation of the federal laws at the state level. There was no president. OK. So when we moved to the constitutional-based republic, we established an executive office, okay? And that allowed for the executive officer to oversee the implementation of federal laws into the states, is number one. Number two, there was no uh, high court. So there's no one, single court that allowed for legal decisions to be, uh, to be determined and, and then flowed out to a national level so that each one of the regional governments implemented the, the, uh, the same legal uh, precedent. Okay, so there was no Supreme Court. So we established that as well. And the third was um, there was no way of requiring the states to actually implement the laws that were created at the central government. So they were picking and choosing what they wanted to do or not do. So the federal government and the central government was creating laws. And then the states were saying, I don't like that. I'm not going to I'm not going to do it. Right. Those were the three main issues that we were trying to resolve when we were moving from a confederacy to a constitutional based republic. Now, with a a, a, a constitutional federal republic. There's there's two parts to it. One is federal, and the other is is a republic. Now, when you deal with a federation, a federation is simply a central government that creates the laws, right? So it's a representative government that would have a, of a central government that would be represented by each of the individual regional governments, and they would create the laws, and then they would federate them out to the states for implementation or administration. And that's the way it's supposed to work. So the laws would be made by the central government and they would federate them out to the regional governments for administration and application. And what that does is it creates harmony among all of the regional governments. George Washington, he said in his, in his, uh, in his farewell address, he said, uh, in contemplating the causes which may disturb our union, it occurs as a matter of serious concern for the characterizing of parties by geographical discriminations, whence designing men may endeavor to excite a belief that there's a real difference of local interests and views. George Washington's greatest concern for the stability of our nation was having these individual regional governments having their own independent views. Because what would happen there is this disharmony. We would no longer have a United States. We would have a separated states. We have three times been faced with the Confederacy. First, when we were, when we were moving from, from the Confederacy uh, of America to the United States of America and the constitutional-based federal republic, that was the first time. And you got to look at the, at the two um, political theories that were in play. James Madison was coming up with the Federal Republic, with a strong central government, three branches of government, and unity among all of the regional governments. That was what James Madison was bringing forward. And then you had a, 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 the Confederacy remaining as a Confederacy, but with, and so the states would all remain sovereign and maintain the sovereignty, but then they would have a loose association increased at, this, at the central government level. That was the two arguments, the two political theories or or national theories that were being discussed at that period of time. What ended up winning was James Madison's strong central government with three branches of government and not the uh, local um, improved uh, regional government. 
Those are the two theories. The regional government didn't win. Mm. And that's interesting because states don't have sovereignty. Okay. That is another issue that, 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 the, law, that the court has put forward. And I, I, I just want to put this out there because this is very, very important information for people to understand. Okay. When you talk about sovereignty, sovereignty derives from the belief that the king can do no wrong. Okay. The laws derive from the king and he has the just principles and rights to be able to do that because of his kingship. Okay. So he creates the laws, right? And as a result, sovereignty derives from him. Okay. So you can't charge a king. You can't, you can't sue a king without his permission or his consent. Okay. When we, the United States citizens, when we won our independence, we each received our freedom. And as a result, we each became essentially sovereign because as a result of winning our freedom, we then have the freedom to do whatever we want. So in order for us to be sent to prison or in order for us to be subject to laws, we must give our consent, just like a king would have to give his consent. We give our consent because we, the people, give the government the power to govern through the consent of the governed. We are the ones that create the laws. The laws originate from us. That makes us the sovereign, and that does not allow for the government to be above us. The government is simply is, – is now, 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 the thing is, that's the central government. When you deal with the states, okay, the decision for the states to be sovereign, what, there was a case in, in 1793 called Chisholm versus Georgia. In the case Chisholm versus Georgia, this was the first time that sovereignty was actually questioned. And in that case, an individual from South Carolina was suing Georgia for whatever, whatever it was. I don't remember. Anyway, this individual was suing a separate state that he didn't live in, and ultimately – the court came out, the Supreme Court of the United States came out and said, states don't have sovereignty. Whatever sovereignty they had, they gave up to become a part of the union because they're subject to the laws of the United States of America, and therefore they cannot be independent. Okay? So that was Chisholm versus Georgia. That was right next to the, um, uh, right next to the, um, uh, the signing of the Constitution by people that actually wrote the Constitution. And they said there is no sovereignty because states gave that up when they choose, chose to become a part of the union. So what happened then was – Chisholm won. He won his case, and he was able to sue and, and sue the state. The state didn't have sovereignty. Well, the states then threw a fit. They, they threw a fit, and they couldn't believe this was happening. So what they did was they went and they had the 11th Amendment enacted. Now, we did enact it, but the 11th Amendment makes no mention to an individual suing his own state. The only thing that the 11th Amendment says is that you can't sue a different state. So I can't sue the state of Oregon because I won't have standing in Oregon. That's all it says. And if you read the 11th Amendment, it says it makes no mention whatsoever to suing your own state or agents of your own state. Okay, so what happened then was 1793, they, they, they made the decision the states aren't sovereign. Then uh, 17, um, 1798, I believe, you had the um, 11th Amendment enacted. And when it was enacted, right, it technically overruled partially this Chisholm versus Georgia case. It said that now you just can't sue a different state. So then fast forward to 1890, okay? So from 1793 to 1890, you have uh, Hans versus Louisiana. It was presented to the Wake Court. The Wake Court said in their ruling, they said, we don't read the 11th Amendment literally. We read it figuratively. And we believe that it says this, or we believe that it means or implies this. The United States Supreme Court has no legal authority to alter, amend, or destroy the Constitution of the United States. That is the sole duty and responsibility of the citizens of the United States. That's in accordance with Article 1. Article 1 says, this constitution says, all legislative power shall be vested in a Congress of the United States consisting of a House and a Senate. So, so all legislative power must be done by the people. 
But more importantly, the Constitution of the United States specifically identifies within Article 5 the special amending procedures to change or alter the Constitution of the United States. And nowhere in it does it say that a judge or the judicial branch has any right to alter, amend, or destroy the Constitution. That Constitution is a contract. And as a contract, I'm challenging the court. Show me where within the four corners of that Constitution it says I cannot sue my state. They can't show me that. And as a result, that is a duty. It's a duty that they must follow. And no, states are not sovereign. They can't be sovereign. But there's a reason why that was put in place. So the Wake Court made the decision that they're going to be sovereign. And they made that decision for some very specific reasons. And I come back on that. But, but they made the decision. But it's not written in the Constitution. They altered it to do it. Now, what's important and what's interesting is that in 1995, there was another question that came forward about sovereignty. It was in the Seminole Tribe of Florida versus Florida case. And what's interesting there is the court didn't decide to overrule uh, the, um, the um, sovereign immunity issue, but rather Justice Souter provided the dissenting opinion. And what Justice Souter said was, there appears to be two versions of the 11th Amendment that exists. One enacted by the people in 1795, the other conceived by this court almost a century later. Justice Souter said himself that the court conceived it. It's not even based on, on valid law. Hans is not going to be difficult to overcome. You can't, the judicial branch has no right to, to, to alter the Constitution of the United States. But more importantly, when you look at the Waite court and the things that Waite did and his intention, we have, Waite was an individual that actually said that the 14th Amendment may stand forever, but we intend to make it a dead letter on the, on the books. As we said, he wanted to proliferate the, same, the slave industry. You can look at his rulings that he put into place. They are horrible, disgusting rulings. Every single one of them was to proliferate the slave industry from the Crunkshack case where, mm. where you had 150 uh, black Americans that were gunned down by, by some white people. And then he refused to prosecute them, refused to allow the, the, the federal government to prosecute them because they said that, that, that the blacks weren't entitled to. These are horrible, horrible decisions. Well, this and goes back into this goes back into what we were talking about when we're when we're talking about the unity is is <clears throat> trying to 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 not tell black people what or how we want to create unity but to understand what it's going to take for them to to trust us again and i just had this conversation with a with a lady last night that i'm actually co-starring in this play that i'm i'm getting ready to get into because the play is the play's titled american son and the whole premise of it is is you know a, a black mother that's dealing with a racist cop and you know uh the estranged husband is white it's a biracial so it's on netflix but in that we were we we sat up for three hours last night discussing race and and it's like she said you know it it's going to take ownership on our part to really understand what we've done to this race of people how we've left them behind for 400 years and how how do we make that up you know it's not just saying okay let's just forget about it and and we'll be we'll go forward from here because you still have that gap so how do we fix that gap so so what i'm proposing and this isn't out there yet but what i'm proposing is this okay justice is not about vengeance okay you don't heal anything with 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 just with with vengeance. So, I think that I wrote into the into the introduction or the introduction to the Supreme Court. I said, "Vengeance solves nothing. Casting blame fails to grasp the greater message, and our mutual hope should be reconciliation, not just with each other, but with the faith in the source of our nation's foundation." 
We are a nation of laws, and those laws are essential to maintaining order and peace. But more importantly, we are a nation founded on faith. We must return to the faith of our design system. Now, the reason why I say that is that, is that we have a system today that is built upon the model of vengeance. Okay? It's a punitive mm-hmm. system. You do something, it's going to be eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You're going to pay for the things that you've done. And that returns back to a debt-based system. That's running government as though it's a business. And if you run government as though it's a business, then the decisions that you make are going to be based upon fiscal considerations instead of societal considerations. You're going to be more concerned about the money than you are the people. And that's what's happening. We have a business that's being ran, and they think that this business needs to be run in a certain way so that they can generate revenue. And they generate revenue by the more people that they put into place, right? It's not a business. This is not, we're not in the business of creating slaves. We're not in the business of imprisoning people. We're not selling stocks uh, of, of prisoners up on the, on the New York Stock Exchange. We, that's not what we should be doing, right? Justice is equally concerned about the accuser and the accused because here's the problem, okay? Hurting people hurt people. When you take a hurting person and you put him into an unhappy situation and you hurt him even more and then, you, and then he gets out and you expect him to suddenly stop hurting, that's Release insane. them back into we the community. These people, justice is about forgiveness. It's not about vengeance. When you take these people there, when you say, listen, something happened to you at, at, at some point in your life, early childhood trauma happened to you, we need to address that issue because that's the source of all problems. We need to recognize the fact that something happened to this individual at some point in his life that changed the trajectory of his life. We need to stop looking at what they do and we need to start looking at what's been done to them because something has been done to these people and then we can start resolving this issue. But when we take people, we say, you're a piece of garbage and we're going to send you out to prison and then expect you to get better. We're not getting, we're not getting anything better. We're getting worse and worse and worse. And so here's the thing, right? What we got to do first off is we have to recognize the fact that if you're a child and you grow up without your parents, without your father, or your mother, they're off prison, you have more than a 70 to 80% likelihood of going to prison yourself. Okay. 92% of the people that are in prison right now have got three or more children. Okay. So if you look at just the numbers alone, one generation, and we're going to have, we're going to be doubling the, the prison population. One generation. You said 92% of people that are in prison right now have three or more children. Yeah, that's, that, that was the statistics that, that I that read. 92% of the people in prison have got three or more children. That's we're astounding. The number three, we can just go off the number three alone, right? And, and, and that means that, that of the 2 million people that are sitting in prison, well, if we Within the system is 10 million. If we look at just that number alone, this is an unsustainable track that we're on. We are destroying the familial unit and we're doing it in order to generate revenue. And isn't that right? isn't that how isn't that how communism is established? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you break up the familial unit, right? A family can live without a country, but a country cannot survive without the family. We have to have it. So these children, these children, we are. We're, we're, we're destroying them because we're taking the family away. Now, I don't want to digress too much here, but when you look at what's happening with CPS and, and, these, and these children that the states are, are taking, they're getting paid $40,000 per, per child that they take into the system. That's under, the, under the, um, the Social Security Act. So these states are receiving a monetary payment for every single child that they, that they take up and, and take into their, into their custody. So there's a financial incentive for them to continue to do this. Now, all through history, children have always been an economic generator. And it's no different today. There's still an economic generator because the Social Security Administration is paying $40,000 for per child that they take into their custody. And that, that's well known. It's, I mean, you can, you can pull up the, the, the act itself and you can read it. It's right, right, right there. Um, but 
what's happening then is, according to English common law, the father is responsible for the child and the child's health and well-being. So the education, the the um, the, uh, the food, the uh, and so on. So they have primary control and custody of 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 a child, according to English common law. So if you want to take the child, the first thing you need to do is break up the family unit and get the father away so that he's no longer in a position to do that. Then the state can come in and take over that paternal position. And now the state is responsible for educating the child, right? State can choose what they want to, choose, what they want to teach. They, they're responsible for feeding the child and clothing the child and so on. And so under English common law, the woman, you either have a free woman or you have a slave woman, right? So you either have a convicted criminal a woman or you have one that hasn't been convicted if you're a free woman you can have your child taken away for poverty you can have them taken away for uh, adultery you can have so there's certain things that they can that they can take the child for but as a slave they can take the child for any reason whatsoever and i deal with these cps cases all day long and they're they're, they're just sickening but so anyway we have this breakdown of the familial unit and we can see why it's happening we can see the financial incentive behind it and yet we are destroying our country in the process because every single one of these children, look at what we're doing to them. I mean, we're taking the father away from them. If you have a child, like and the mother, it breaks my heart when I think about my son. It's been four and a half years since I've spoken to my child because the judge during my trial, who wouldn't allow me to testify, who wouldn't allow me to present evidence, who wouldn't allow me to call witnesses on my behalf, who, who prevented me from being able to defend myself completely because he wanted me in prison. All right, and that's this whole digressing, but. Nonetheless, that same judge, seven months later, forced my wife to, to, to file for a divorce. And when she did, they awarded, he awarded her absolutely everything of a multi-million dollar uh, estate and took away my, my parental rights of, of my children without even hearing, without even contacting me, without even giving me the opportunity to be able to respond to the complaint. That same judge did all that, signed it, and, and stole everything from me. And um, so it's been, it's been four and a half years since I've spoken to anyone, to my three children, seeing them or spoken to them. I don't know where they're at. Mm. And uh, when you look at the child, a, a boy in particular, when you take away the father from that boy, he loses his sense of self. He has nothing to aspire. That His father is the one that, that he looks up to, that he learns how to be a man. And that's horrible. And then when you look at the, at the daughter, the daughter's first love is her father. Right, because the daughter will marry someone just like her father. So her father's there to set the to set the 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 example of what she should be looking for in a man. To take away that father, what does she have to? to well, to that's for? I mean, it's that's that's common sense and that's logic. It, it's both both parents. Uh, that, uh, that's how God created it. This is why right. He created a man and a woman, and they create right. a child, and they both raise that child because they both are are implementing the nature of life into this child. And when you take right. away one, then that it's, 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 it's insufficient. It's you can't run on half an engine. There's nothing that was built to run at 100%. Is it going to run at 50% and, and right. provide the results that you expect at a hundred percent It's just not going to happen. And right. so, so we know this, plus. we know this. So why is the structure not geared around making sure that the family stays together, making sure that everything that they do is to keep our family unit strong and together. Why is our government not structured in that sense? When you ask these questions and you have to go back to what we've been discussing is it's a business. It's meant it's an agenda. It's an it's a business. And we're being deceived that it's not. So 
it can continue to go. So to wrap this up, this has been an explosive conversation. I did not expect this at all reaching out to you, but what is it exactly that you're doing? Where can people contact you? How can they get a hold of you and be participating in, in what it is that you're doing? Okay. So ultimately what I'm going to do now is I have, I have a, a, a writ, a, uh, um, an argument, a legal argument that's, that's ready to go to the United States Supreme Court. It's there on a jurisdictional error, which means that it, it is always and forever uh, um, um, void, right? It's not, it's not, um, uh, the parties involved are not, are not legally bound to it. So the jurisdictional error was created the moment that the United States District Court of Eastern Washington chose to make a decision and a ruling on a case where they lacked personal jurisdiction over the parties involved in the dispute. My case was Tanawa M. Downing versus the state of Washington. Okay. So under Article 3, Section 2, it says, in all cases in which a state shall be party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction, which means that anytime a state chooses to become a party in cause, exclusive personal jurisdiction has been assigned by the United States Constitution to the United States Supreme Court. So there's two instances in which the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction, and that is anytime a foreign dignitary is named a party and anytime a state is named a party. Okay? So when the state is named a party, guess what? They can no longer act as the judge and make a decision in the, in the case. And that's supported by uh, the Federalist Number 10 by James Madison and the Federalist Number 78 by Alexander Hamilton. They both talk about this issue. Now, in the case of, of James Madison in the Federalist Number 10, it was the article titled The Union as a Safeguard Against Domestic Faction and Insurrection. And in the article, what James Madison said is, no man is allowed to be judged in his own cause because his interest would no doubt bias his judgment and not improbably corrupt his integrity. With equal, nay, with greater reason, a body of men are unfit to be both judge and party at the same time. So states cannot be, and they were never intended to be, both judge and party at the same time because of the bias, prejudice, partiality, which would ultimately transpire as a result of it. Anytime a state becomes a party and cause, they, the state no longer has legal authority to act as the judge in the cause, and exclusive personal jurisdiction has been assigned by the Constitution of the United States to the United States Supreme Court. Now, what's important to note there is that that's a duty. It's a duty. So when we talk about the Supreme Court being a court of discretion, that's an act of legislation. Acts of legislation must also conform with the Constitution, or else they will be unconstitutional. Congress can't just create an act that is contrary to the Constitution and have it be legal and lawful. So the Judicial Reform Act of 1925, which gave the Supreme Court the authority to be a court of discretion, is only constitutional so far as it complies with the Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution says that there's two instances in which the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction anytime a foreign dignitary is named party, anytime a state is named party, which means that my case can now go to the court, which had original jurisdiction in the case to begin with. The moment that the United States District Court ruled on a case in which they lacked personal jurisdiction, that created a jurisdictional error, which means that this court exceeded the power authority statutory conferred upon it by the Constitution. Now, in that, in that, ju that judgment summarily dismissing it, the district court judge even said that he lacked personal jurisdiction or he lacked jurisdiction in the case. So the problem is, is why did you rule on a case in which you lacked jurisdiction? Now, like I said in the beginning, I, I went to prison and I got thousands of people to petition with me. We filed these cases just, I mean, there were hundreds going in every, every single day or every week. And they were going to both courts, both the Eastern Washington and Western Washington. But I had everybody use the exact same two parties, right? It was their name plus the state of Washington. And that was every single case that we submitted. 
So what happened then was that when it went to Western Washington, the court over Western Washington, before that court took any action whatsoever, they ordered the court to substitute the respondent from the state of Washington to the warden. Now, why did they do that? Because that court recognized the fact that they did not have jurisdiction in a case where a state was named a party. And as a result, they had to substitute it with someone else so that they could have jurisdiction, someone that they had personal jurisdiction over. So they replaced that with the warden. Now, whether I'm right or wrong is irrelevant. What happened was there was an error that was created as a result of him making a ruling on a case that he didn't have jurisdiction. But the good news is, is that now that case is going to Supreme Court because at a minimum, the Supreme Court has to deal with the, the, uh, um, the jurisdictional error. Now, what happened back in Guantanamo Bay era, I think it was 2004, there was a case mm-hmm. called um, Rashad versus Bush, I think, or Rashul versus Bush. And what happened was, was that it went to Supreme Court and Supreme Court made a decision that, um, that uh, it was similar. It was, there was, in fact, a jurisdictional error that they identified. And they decided to not make the ruling on it because they didn't want to have to make the ruling. Instead, what they did was they reversed the judgment, sent it back to the district court for, for legal and constitutionally acceptable adjudication, and the district court immediately jumped, jumped, dropped the charges. I was afraid they would do that with me. I'd get to the Supreme Court, they'd simply reverse the judgment, send it back to district court, and then they dismiss me legally, and you know, we'd never get into the court to actually get this argument put into place. So what I did was I presented this. My, my civil case is Tanwam Downing versus the state of Washington. That's the criminal case or the civil case. My criminal case is state of Washington versus Tanwim Downing. They are the exact same parties. So if they rule and decide that the first one, the civil case is unconstitutional, then guess what? They are automatically declaring the criminal case unconstitutional because the parties are exactly the same. Simply rearranging the order of the parties does not magically change the representation of the parties. If one plus two equals three is unconstitutional, then two plus one equals three is also unconstitutional. They are both going to be. So what that does is it requires the Supreme Court to actually make a ruling on this case. That's all I want. Say that we get the rights that are, that are contained with the Constitution of the United States. Say that we get them. That's all I want. And then we can, we can go on about a business, but don't continue to lie to the people. So this is what I'm doing, okay? Because the states have done what, they, what they've done, and they've, and they've proceeded illegally and unconstitutionally, at this point in time, anyone can file a Abe's corpus on behalf of someone else that they feel is, is being held in violation of their constitutional rights. My writ of habeas corpus is on behalf of every single person who is being held within, within a state uh, prison system, because every single one of those cases are a state versus them. And I'm sorry, but it is what it is. I follow God. I believe in him. I know what God's attributes are. I know what God's direction is, and I believe in him. It scares me, too, to think some of the things that, that could happen. But at the end of the day, God says, release the prisoners, get them out of there. And that's what I'm trying. That's, that's what I'm going to do. So we can do this, Amen. because my case... When you deal with a writ of habeas corpus, it's an all or nothing deal, right? So I presented this argument to the, to the, to the court, right? Article 3, Section 2, the state's a party, and as a result, they can no longer judge. And under Civil Rule 60B-4, in fact, under Civil Rule 60B-4, anytime a, a court renders a decision in a case where they lack jurisdiction, then it becomes a void judgment. And a void judgment can always and forever be vacated. It will never be valid. And as a result... I'm not arguing for anyone's innocence. I don't know if they're innocent. That's, that's, that's between them and God at this point in time. But what I am saying is they're not guilty because guilt is a process and the state did not follow that process. And as a result, you cannot violate the law in order to enforce the law. Follow our laws. They're in place for a reason. Follow them. And if you don't want to follow them, great. Then we'll just have lawlessness. But you cannot justify a criminal act in order to pursue a criminal act. You can't do it. 
Hannah, so if anyone wants to get in touch with me, you know, I, I would recommend that they that they start with Facebook. I, I've got the contact information there. But ultimately, I need people's prayers. I'm not asking for money. I'm not asking for. I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. Because I just know that um, if I can win my case, then the way that it works is we all win our case. And uh, I'm only asking that they enforce the laws as written. I'm not saying change anything. I'm just saying if the laws say that something will be done in a certain way, then we must follow that way. Laws do not change arbitrarily. That's tyranny. Constitutionalism demands that the laws evolve only through suffrage. Therefore, it's up to the people to decide whether or not the Constitution applies to them and not a judge or a state. Let the people decide if, in the opinion of the people of the United States, any of the provisions or guarantees of the United States Constitution Amen. are in any particular way wrong, then let it be corrected by an amendment in the way in which the Constitution so designates until... If and when that time comes, every single United States citizen is entitled to every single right secured by and enumerated in the United States Constitution. That's what I'm doing. Thank you so much. You know, there's there's a there's some ugly, sadistic monsters on the other side of of that writ that you're talking about, and and I I, I agree with you 100, percent but. I worry about your safety yeah. in these matters because yeah, I, I mean, it is what it is. If, 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 if my safety is in danger because, because of, sorry. If I believe that if I were in danger, I think that the, that the, the opportunity is passed. If they were to do something, they should have done something to me while I was in prison. It could have went away. No one would have ever known. I, I, I've been told that one of the big reasons why I'm probably still alive and still doing what I'm doing is because I put everything out there. I, I'm, I'm blatantly honest about it, and I, I blast it out there. And, and there's, there's more than enough information. And I'm not really doing anything wrong. I'm simply saying I love America, right? And, and yeah, if, but if you're, we you're interfering. America, we need to you're, defend you're, America. You're interfering, with, you're interfering with some big players yeah. that have a big agenda. Right. And, and, and unfortunately, I, I, I can't change what God has is, is, is asked me to do. I mean, All I'm I with you, brother. Me. Listen, I'm with you 100 percent. You're on my channel. And like I say, I bring some controversial things onto my channel that exposes a lot of a lot of the corruption that goes on within our court system and within our, our, our America. And I'm with you. 100%. I mean, if they come and they and they and they do what they do, then that's just what it is. And I tell my subscribers, my listeners, whatever, if I disappear, you know what it is, you know, so, but it's, it's, I really want Americans to understand the, 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 the pressure in doing what it is that you're doing, because I, they don't, they don't understand, like, when you file this inside a prison, what happens to you? So, so I was very, very concerned about that. And, and before I filed, I had to take certain measures to protect myself, right? First off, I spent the first six months that I was there handwriting and recording the entire Blacks Dictionary, the entire Criminal Procedure Manual, and the entire Civil Rules of Civil Procedure. I hand wrote every single one of them, hand copied it. I spent six months doing that. I had thousands of pages of that because I knew that the moment I filed, those books would disappear. And sure enough, they did. Right. They knew they, I knew that. So one of the first things I did was I recorded everything I needed to be able to proceed with this. That was that was number one. Number two, I was concerned about the fact that this is a valid argument. And if I have a valid, valid argument, they're not going to keep me in general population so I can spread this around. 
So before I filed, I already had 49 other people that were on board. They already had their paperwork filled out. So the day that I filed, they were already scheduled to file as well. By the end of that week, we had the first 49 people in and that gave me the, the numbers to be able to protect myself, right? I had conversation with the warden. The warden uh, indicated that, you know, that I can get you on inciting a riot. And I had to explain to him, sir, mm-hmm. this isn't your fight. Don't get involved in this because if you get involved in this, then you're going to be violating my rights, peaceably assemble and petition the government for redress of grievances. I and said, I have been charged with that inside a prison is inciting a riot for exactly yeah. what it is that you're talking about. So, right. And, and so I was threatened with that, but he ultimately agreed, you know, at the end of the day, this isn't your fight, sir. This is, don't get involved in this because if you do, then I'm going to be coming after you as well. And, and, and he, he didn't need that. I spent, I spent the whole time in prison and you want to know, I never had my room even, even checked. I never got talked to when, when it came time for me to, um, uh, to, to leave, you know, six, I, I think I had nine months worth of good time. They never even asked me. They, they would walk by my room and say, all we need is just an address and you can get out. Mm-hmm. I don't want out. I'm here for a reason. I'm going to be here until the day you kick me out of here. I, I, I never felt in danger. Those people that were there, they knew why I was there. They called me the preacher, right? And, and they knew I was there. And, and once, I, once I started showing them that this is what I'm doing, I had all the protection in the world. Mm-hmm. Those guys, they, I'm, I'm good with them. And I owe them my life because, because had it been anything different, yeah, it, it would have been a different scenario for me. But these people, they protected me. They took care of me. We had, I, I had the Southsiders that told me I can go out to the yard by myself and they'll protect me. Along with the way, everybody protected me and took care of me because I was there for a reason. And, you know, I, I mentioned this yesterday in a, in a posting, but when I first got to prison, that first Sunday, there were less than 30 people who attended that, that prison or, or that, that, um, that, uh, that service. The day I left or the, the last Sunday before I left, it was standing room only 350 people. And the line was still 200 yards out the door or 200 feet outside the door. It stretched almost all the way to medium security side. That is what happens with hope, right? These people, if you want to, if you want to change the world, if you want to do something, are you going to go to the ones that are filled with hope that have a job and a house, a car? No, God's going to send you to the hopeless because who better to fill with hope than the hopeless. That's where we needed to go to create this change. These people were looking for something better. They want some, they were just looking for something to believe in. And I gave them something to believe in. And once we did, everything changed. The whole morale of that facility changed. And, and so my point is, is that, um, is that, uh, um, I've seen some amazing things. I've seen, what can actually happen here? I, I believe personally that once I became a Christian, God sent me to prison. All right. That's where he sent me. And so, you know, as a, as a Christian, I'm able to feel, you know, when I'm around people that, that I should be nervous about. None of these people ever made me feel nervous. Not one of them, not one of them. And, and I was among some pretty supposedly bad people. They kept me in medium security the whole time. And, uh, and because, they just decided they wanted to. So, you know, I was in a lockdown pod and, you know, but at the end of the day, these people weren't, weren't in danger. They, they weren't, they weren't threatening to me. They were, uh, they became my brothers and, uh, and I love them very much. And I made the promise to them that, that I will not, uh, I will not stop mm-hmm. until I get them home. I made promises to, uh, uh, to, to many daughters and many wives that, that I won't stop. Um, you know, I've got three master's degrees. I was very, very wealthy. I don't care about that anymore. What I care about is, is this, because I spent the first half of my life using all my expertise and my talents to better myself or to, to benefit myself. And I benefited a lot. I mean, I literally could buy anything I wanted, but with the swipe of a pen and in an instant, all of that was taken away and I have absolutely nothing anymore. So I just figured the second half of life, 
I think I better use all my talents and expertise on someone else. And let's see if we can make something that's going to last. And I feel so much better about doing it this way than the other way. And, um, you know, so I made the promise to more than enough kids that, um, that we're not going to stop until, uh, until we get their dads home because, uh, Amen. I'm with you, man. Absolutely. I'm with you. I made those same promises and this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And, And one of the, one of the dudes I made a promise to 10 years ago, I just got hit on core links not too long ago. And he's, because I'll send him notes about how my progression and he's like, man, that's, you kept your word, man. And that very few people do that, you know? So people see that you and I keep our word and, and we try to do what we can do and it's appreciated. So Tanawa, thank you so much for this conversation. I do want to bring you back on again sometime and, and really get into um, the constitution because yeah. <clears throat> I'm ignorant in the Constitution, and I know 99% of other Americans are as well. And I want to really just start getting um, into just the Constitution, understanding what our rights are, how the Constitution was formed, all of these things. So if you don't mind, I would love to bring you back on that. And um, great conversation, man. Thank you so much. How can they get a hold of you? I would go to Facebook. So just to do a search for my name. There's no other Tanawa that exists. That's T-A-N-A-W-A-H. Last name is Downing, D-O-W-N-I-N-G. If you would connect with me through there, that, that would be, that'd be great. Perfect. Feel free to send me a message. Um, I, I'll respond with, with contact information. The problem that I have is that I have to be a little bit concerned about where I get information and who it is because uh, uh, I, I never know who's, who's actually on the other end of that line. And uh, when you look at what was going on during Plessy versus Ferguson and, and the uh, Brown versus Board of Education period of time and, and Dr. King, they were they were bringing in individuals to incite uh, uh, criminal statements or things along those lines. I've had people that have been brought into my into my uh, Facebook site that I know shouldn't be there. I know I know that they were wrong. They were asking the wrong questions. So I, I'm a little bit leery about that. So if you'll connect with me and if you'll just give me a moment to, to actually confirm who you are. Uh, then I would love to talk with you. And I, everything I know is free. What God gives freely to me, I give freely to everyone else. What's important here is that this knowledge goes to everyone. It's not about paying for it. It's not about hoarding it. It's about everyone sharing in this knowledge and spreading it because the more that spreads, the quicker the Supreme Court of the United States is going to open their doors and allow me in to present this argument and get those guys home to their families. Thank you. Amen. Amen, man. I mean, it's here again. This is Thomas Freeme and and I'm bringing another guest on to unite America and just educate and just try to bring us together to make us, you know, one strong, harmonious unit. And and we can just put the power back into the people's hands. So, uh, Mr. Tanawa, again, thank you for for coming on the show. Um, Love to see you back again. Take care. Stay blessed. Till the next time, everybody continue to be your best self. Stay out of your emotions. Think logically, realistically, and let's keep this thing pushing. God bless America. Thank you so much.